I mean, it's fairly rare for the government to expressly target religion. More, more often, it's the case that governments will try and achieve some other legitimate public object- objective, which will have the effect of infringing the free exercise of religion. <laughs> Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator specializing in political theology, the intersection between religion and politics. My guest is Dr. Ben Saunders, who is an associate professor at the Deakin Law School. Ben's principal areas of research interest are constitutional law, the history of federation and law and religion. Ben has over 10 years of professional experience having worked in private practice and with the Victorian and Commonwealth governments, advising on constitutional law and human rights, among other things. Ben, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Ben and I are going to have a conversation about God and religion in the Australian Constitution. Maybe you're surprised to know that both of them are in there in rather prominent places. And we'll dive in with the most obvious starting place, which is section 116. Everyone should know that there's actually a part of the constitution that deals with religion, but this is Australia we're talking about. So perhaps there are listeners for whom this is completely out of left field that our constitution in this very secular state in inverted commas, as we like to tell ourselves, actually deals explicitly with the issue of religion. So let me read out what section 116 of our constitution says. The Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion and no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth. Ben, in plain English, what does this mean? In plain English, well, it might take a little while to get there. So That's okay, um, we've got time. Yeah, sounds good. So I guess um, Section 116 was inserted towards the very end of the Federation debates. So the terms of our constitution were debated in the 1890s. There was a convention in 1891 and then a later convention, 1897 to 1898. And this was inserted right towards the end of the, very, of the, of the second convention um, when the delegates were exhausted and ready to go home. And so they've been debating the terms of the constitution over, over many months. And there was a flood of petitions from the people of Australia, from churches, outraged there was no mention of God in the Constitution. And so towards the end, uh, Patrick McMahon Glynn, who is a, a devout Catholic, he proposed that God should be acknowledged in the preamble. And that was then inserted um, in, in the recognising that the people of Australia had federated, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God. And so that was inserted then, um, as I say, largely at the instigation of the flood of petitions from the people of, uh, around Australia. And then there was a concern that by inserting that into the Constitution, recognising God, that might, by inference, confer power on the Commonwealth to legislate about religion. So the Commonwealth is, is different to the states. The Commonwealth only has those powers that are expressly conferred on it by the Constitution, whereas the states are the opposite. They can make laws about absolutely anything they like. So the Commonwealth has a limited set of powers conferred, mainly in Section 51, and that they're the things that the Commonwealth can make laws about and, and nothing else. And so there was a fear that by recognising God in the preamble, this would then confer power on the Commonwealth to make laws about religion. And so Section 116 was inserted by the framers 
to guard against that. So it's that, that perceived fear that the Commonwealth might legislate about religion. And so that kind of explains the purpose of Section 116. So it's not primarily an individual rights protection clause. It's about protecting the rights of the states. So it's, it's a federal provision, by which I mean it's, um, it's about the distribution of powers within the Australian Federation. So it denies power to the Commonwealth to legislate about the things that you mentioned, establishment, free exercise, that sort of thing. And therefore, it reserves those powers to the states. So it's, a, it's primarily a federal provision. It's protecting the rights of the states to legislate about religion. It's not primarily about protecting my rights or your rights as an individual. So it, it's kind of framed, I mean, I'm not a constitutional expert, and I know when it comes to law, it's all in the semantics in, in many ways. It's a kind of linguistic art. It, it reads linguistically in a very negative, you know, it's, it's a kind of the Commonwealth will not, shall not, cannot. And so I'm just sort of teasing out my understanding of, of what you just laid out there. So it's it's really a provision aimed at restricting what the Commonwealth can do. And as you say, this was born of a concern, which I, I, I'm guessing explains why it, it came in very late in the picture, born of a concern of the reference to the Almighty in the preamble. Do I take it? Then I mean you can you can sort of clean that up if there's anything wrong there. That's just my sort of uh, layman's understanding. Do I take it then that states could make laws relating to religion? And in particular, I'm very interested to know if, say, the state of Victoria, where you live, could establish a religion. Like, do they have that legal scope? Yeah, absolutely. So that was the that was the exact purpose of the of the clause. So it's. So it says the Commonwealth shall not make any law. So it's denying power to the Commonwealth to make laws about those things and therefore reserving power to the states to make laws about those things. So yes, Victoria, where I live, could enact a law tomorrow establishing a particular religion as the state religion of Victoria. So and this, this probably isn't too much of a stretch, but if the Victorian government wanted to erect a giant statue of Daniel Andrews and said, you must bow down and worship Daniel Andrews twice a day, again, it's probably not much of a stretch for, for people living in Victoria. <laughs> But they would have the power to do that. So that, that would not be that would not infringe Section 116 of the Constitution. So Victoria has the power, the legal power to do that. And following on from that, has any state actually legislated in relation to religion? Because I'm guessing they could also do all the things that are prohibited here. They could impose a religious test for uh, office, for example. But have any of the states actually exercised this pr provision? Or it's not this provision, obviously it's not a provision, but these powers. So, um, first of all, it depends on what you mean by establishment. So, there's, there's different views about that. So, um, the traditional understanding, or the understanding in Australia, is that establishment means establishing a religion as the officially endorsed religion of a state or uh, or, or commonwealth. And that's that has not been done in Australia. There was a brief flirtation with that in the 19th century, a kind of plural establishment. But since then, that's not, not been the case. Though some define establishment more broadly. And so any form of government support or endorsement of religion could be seen as an establishment. So in that sense, um, if that's what you take establishment to mean, so the Commonwealth and the states do support religious schools, for example, and provide funding for religious bodies and tax exemptions. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's a, a good understanding of establishment, but some think that's how we should understand establishment. So on that understanding, yes, there has been uh, 
laws and support of religion in various ways. Uh, with the free, ex free exercise of religion, there are various laws in the states and territories which do have the effect of infringing the free exercise of religion. And they're not normally direct. They don't normally directly attack religion, but what they'll try and do is, is regulate or achieve another goal, like anti-discrimination, for example, in, in a way which prevents Christians from, for example, employing who they want at, in religious schools or things like that. So there are laws which have the effect of infringing religious freedom, but they're not directly targeted at religion. They're, tr they're trying to achieve another goal and it has the effect of impacting religion. And would I be right in assuming that that then comes down to this debate about the need for uh, religious freedom legislation because this, there's no restriction on the states uh, in terms of what they can and can't legislate on questions of religion, which of course it follows then any law they pass that's not explicitly about religion, it can have whatever implications for religion because they're under no restriction to shape their legislation in a particular way. Is that why there's this whole push, at least from some quarters, to have something more explicit and I don't know what the right language is here, but a kind of positive right for religious freedom? Because obviously this Section 116 in the Commonwealth has nothing to do with that. All it is doing is shutting the Commonwealth out from the religious legislation game. And, you know, is, is it because the states have this freedom, even if they haven't exercised it explicitly into the full, within the full scope that they have, is that what is dry? Is that the logic behind the push for religious freedom legislation or discrimination legislation? I hear both terms. I'm not sure if there's a distinction. Yeah, that's right. So the, the Section 116 only applies to the Commonwealth, not the states, and it's been interpreted very narrowly by the High Court. So even even in the even to the extent that it applies to the Commonwealth, it hasn't had much substantive impact. So that means the states are largely free then to, to, to legislate as they wish, and they can infringe religious freedom and they can support religion in, in various ways. And there's a perception, uh, certainly in some quarters, that religious freedom is under attack and that anti-discrimination laws are being used to suppress the expression of, of um, religious beliefs and, and religious actions, or religiously motivated actions. And so that there's a need, there's a perceived need that there's a federal protection for um, for religious freedom, which would then override th those state laws. So is that why the, the desired goal of those advocating religious freedom legislation is to see it done at the Commonwealth level because then it sorts out all the states and territories, whereas I guess they'd have to go separately through every state and territory to try and get religious freedom legislation. Is that the kind of strategy there? That's right. I mean, there's, there's lots of inconsistencies among the different state and territory anti-discrimination laws. So some are much more restrictive. Some are so some some state and territory anti-discrimination laws prohibit vilification, for example. So you can't even say things which might be perceived as offensive to people. So that's a, a very strong restriction on the ability to say things. Other states and territories don't have those the laws in those terms. So it's an inconsistent patchwork. So a national law would provide some consistency across Australia. It's also the case that with there's a, there's a political angle, I'm sure, with the coalition government being in power, there was it was seen that there'd be more chance of getting 
the religious discrimination bill through, whereas, for example, Victoria seems much more hostile to religious freedom and religious belief. So it's, it's very it's very unlikely to get a similar thing passed yeah. at the Victorian level. So the there, there are more... religious freedom doesn't go through Dan Andrews. <laughs> That's right. But there's, there's, there's proposed changes to change the um, uh, racial and religious vilification laws in Victoria. There's, they've tightened up the um, exemptions for religious schools and bodies employing staff consistent with the ethos of the school, things like that. So it's becoming fairly, uh, there seems to be a clamp down on the expression of religious values, in, at least in Victoria. Okay, so I want to get back to Section 116, but I'm just going to summarise my understanding so far. So we've got this provision in the Commonwealth Constitution that really prohibits the Commonwealth from getting into the religion business or at least certain specific aspects of it. States are free, basically do whatever they want in religion. None of them have gone as far as establishing a religion, although there is this argument by some academics that there's a kind of de facto establishment because of tax exemption and state aid for religious-based uh, schools. But the states do legislate in areas that have implications for religious freedom, which is really the, the hot part of the debate, if you like. Would that be a fair summary of the kind of landscape of religion and the law in Australia? I know there's a lot more to it. but That's right, and, and that's really the key issue regarding religious freedom. So we all agree with religious freedom as a good thing and so my right to believe a religion or not religion should be should be absolute so there should be no restrictions for government from government or penalties for believing or not believing in terms of my actions to what extent should i be able to get exemptions from the general law based on my religious religious beliefs so clearly there's no absolute exemption from all laws so i can't go and murder someone based on my religious beliefs jihad or something like that uh, that would be clearly wrong so at, at some point i need i need to so at some point there's no exemption from from laws of general application which might impact my sincerely held religious beliefs so to and to what so where do you draw that line mm -hmm. is, is the key question so the state governments should be free to pursue laws which have which are considered necessary for the society um, and to what extent should they be entitled to impact the the expression of my sincerely held religious beliefs and that's really the key question and drawing that line, it's, it's very hotly contested. So some people would say that religious schools should be free to just employ people who share the ethos of the school. So people who, who share the religious beliefs of the school and those who don't should, the school should be, be permitted not to employ such people. Others would say, well, there's a general right of all people not to be discriminated against when applying for a job. Why should religious schools get this special treatment? And so it's very it's very hard to draw a clear line there. I mean, we, so again, we all agree that religious freedom is a good thing, but to what extent should that exempt me from the general the general law? Yeah, that sounds very complicated. So let's leave that alone and get back to the uh, <laughs> the more straightforward territory of the Constitution. You mentioned the High Court there and its narrow interpretation of Section One Sixteen. Am I? Right, I have this. I read some, I read a book about this quite a while ago, and so I'm going from memory here. But am I right that there have actually been very few, relatively few cases, have made it to the High Court specifically on adjudicating arguments or disputes over Section One Hundred and Sixteen? And 
could you just give us a bit of a sense of when you say the High Court has interpreted narrowly, um, what, what do you mean? Can you give us an example? Sure. So there have been very few cases. There are four, really four leading cases and maybe a few others, but um, the High Court has... And I guess it's, it's worthwhile bearing in mind the context too. So the context of Australian constitutionalism is very much a political one. So in the America, in America, it's much more common for contested political questions to be resolved by the courts. So for example, same-sex marriage was an issue resolved in, in America by the Supreme Court. In Australia, there was a same-sex marriage case, but the court said, we'll just determine the legal issue as to whether parliament has the power to enact same-sex marriage. The political question as to whether that's a good thing that's up to you, Parliament and the people. So it's very much a political a, a tradition of dealing with political matters through the political process. So the fact that the, the High Court has interpreted this narrowly, it doesn't mean that we're not concerned about establishment or the free exercise of religion. It simply means that these things are largely determined by the political process in Parliament and through the public debate. So that's, that's just worth bearing in mind. Um, so the court, the court has interpreted things very narrowly. Um, the court has... So if you look at section 116, it says the Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for prohibiting the free exercise of religion. And so the court has held that that word for implies purpose. In other words, a law will only be struck down under section 116 if the law had the purpose of establishing a religion or had the purpose of restricting the free exercise of religion. And that means that it basically had very little impact because it's it's very easy to get around. So a law which has the effect of in, infringing on uh, the free exercise of any religion, that will not be struck down. It's got to have the, the, the purpose of doing so. So, for example, if, if the, the Commonwealth enacted a law saying something like, you know, churches with more than 20 people cannot meet, that would be a, a clear law with the purpose of restricting the free exercise of religion. But if the Commonwealth said something like, it's impermissible for gatherings of more than 20 to meet together or you, you can't build a building with the capacity of more than 20 people that that might not be directly targeted at religion but it would have the effect of restricting the free exercise of religion and so by co concentrating solely on the purpose it means that you can't take into account the effect of of a law okay this is very interesting so in reality the high court it sounds has restricted the restriction <laughs> that's right in exactly the constitution uh, so that the Commonwealth can actually do the things that are prohibited, provided that's not the express purpose of the the legislation. That's right, and it's it's very easy to draft a law and and say that it's got a particular purpose, even if it has the effect of inf infringing religion. And so I think it's it's a, it's a very narrow approach. And so it, I think it makes sense with regard to the establishment clause. So establishment, you either got establishment or you don't. So. Uh, and, and one of the key cases was the, the state aid case in um, uh, in uh, 1980, which which is about state uh, government funding for schools. And I think so. The word for and purpose makes sense in the establishment context. So either you establish a religion or you don't. There's not degrees of establishment. So either either we recognise a particular religion as the officially endorsed religion of the Commonwealth or the states or whatever, or you don't. There's no in between. Whereas I don't think that 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 interpretation really works for free exercise because you can infringe the free exercise of religion to greater or lesser degrees. Yeah. So you can infringe it a little bit or you can infringe it a lot and it really depends on the effect of the law on religion. So a colleague of mine and I wrote an article last year 
and we argued that we should bring in a a test for the free exercise, which looks at the effect of the law on, on religion and, and apply a proportionality test. So I won't bore you with the details on that, but the idea there's, there is that you don't just look at the purpose of the law, but look at its effect or impact on religion. Yep. Fascinating. I just want to go back. So that, that case in, I think it was 1980, state aid, was that, was that brought by someone who was trying to strike down state aid to religious-based schools on the argument that it was a form of establishment and that that was prohibited? That's right, exactly. So the idea was uh, a coalition, Defence of Government Schools, I think was the coalition, and they, they, they tried to argue that government funding of public schools and religious schools uh, is, an, is an infringement of the, the establishment clause by endorsing or supporting religious schools. Okay, and that ruling went against them, and hence the narrow interpretation, presumably, which was that because the purpose of state aid was not to establish religion. <laughs> That's right. So the High Court said, no, establishment means you're officially establishing a religion as the, the, the endorsed, sponsored religion of... So you're, you're identifying this religion as the official religion of the Commonwealth. And so merely supporting government schools, state or religious schools is not establishment. But the problem is that I think that argument, that interpretation works for the establishment clause, yeah. but then that narrow interpretation is carried over into the free exercise clause. And so that, that, that's what the, the narrowness is particularly with regard to the free exercise clause. So in a way, it, it's, it's a, a good ruling on the establishment principle because it then allows scope for things like state aid to religious-based schools, which is a huge proportion of schooling in Australia. But on that effect thing, it then actually gives the Commonwealth <laughs> scope to potentially suppress by effect uh, legislation. Could that even be manipulated by a government that that was intent on curbing the free expression of religion by just passing laws that would have the effect of that, but then be able to argue that that wasn't the purpose of the, the law? Or am I being too cynical here? Sure, that, that's possible. I mean, so, so the question of whether that case is a good case depends on your perspective. I mean, I, I think it's a good thing, but others would say it allows too much scope for government entanglement with religion. As to whether the government could be cynical and cynically impair the free exercise of religion, I mean, it's fairly rare for the government to expressly target religion. More, more often, it's the case that governments will try and achieve some other legitimate public object objective which will have the effect of infringing the free exercise of religion and that's again it's a question of where you draw the line because we all agree that that's that's necessary for governments to have that power but at what point is that an illegitimate impact on on uh, the free exercise of religion and i think um a proportionality test would, would at least allow those those nuances to be taken into account so we're trying to achieve this legitimate goal so first of all is that legitimate or is it really just a cloak for something else uh, and then is the is the benefit that you're seeking worth the cost? So the benefit that you'll get from this law, is it worth the cost that it imposes on the free exercise of religion? So proportionality test is really about weighing mm -hmm. the benefit with the with the cost. And, and I can see why you've made that argument because although, I mean, I, I agree, I think Australian governments, Labor and Coalition, generally aren't anti religious in terms of their legislative agenda. But the question is whether in this day and age, they would even stop to think about the impacts on the free expression of religion, or even if they did, whether that's going to rank 
or Trump or even be considered as <laughs> weighed at the same level as certain other uh, rights these days. And so that if there are grounds for concern on behalf of religious believers, it, it's probably more likely, like you say, that their rights won't be given due consideration in the pursuit of other legitimate government goals. That's right. And when the constitution was drafted, Australia was an overwhelmingly Christian nation. So something like well over 90% church affiliation and about 75% was, was Protestant. So an overwhelmingly Christian nation where Christianity was seen as a good thing. These days, that's very much on the wane and Christianity is now seen, seen as harmful and, and, and something bad. So it's true that there might be as part of the balancing act that we, we weigh Christianity or free exercise of religion. But underlying that, I think, is a view that Christianity is, particularly Christianity, is harmful. And so that inevitably gets lesser weighting than other other rights, which are perceived as more more valuable. Which, I mean, this goes into an interesting philosophy of law question, really, Ben, because it just shows how obviously law has to be written down and the language has to be important because it's got to be interpreted by successive generations of judges. But of course, the underlying culture can shift. And so at some point, you're going to have a political class that might have very different perspective on things like whether religious freedom is a legitimate right, whether and to what extent it conflicts with other emergent rights, or even just that shift in perspective where from one generation the prevailing view might be that Christianity is generally good for society and maybe a harmless superstition at worst too, something actually harmful and threatening <laughs> to marginalise people or indeed a threat to society. And and yet you've still got these laws hmm. written down that have to be interpreted by judges, which I'm guessing aren't supposed to take into consideration those kind of moving cultural waters. They're supposed to what be looking at precedent and the language and the various uh, documents articulated at the time that the legislation came in. That's a very interesting point, Jonathan, and it's true that courts can't be oblivious to cultural shifts. They will inevitably inevitably be impacted by those things. And it's true that um, the constitution is, is very much the tip of an iceberg, so that our constitution is very sparse. There's not much in there, but underlying it is a whole whole tradition of common law values and constitutional values. Um, so there's a whole lot of things which aren't even defined in the constitution, and so that's relying on the pre-existing body of the common law to give content to those to those terms. And it's also true that provisions like Section 116 don't spell out the test that's to be applied by the courts. So when, when the courts come to provisions like the Commonwealth shall not make any law for prohibiting the free exercise of religion, well, clearly that was never meant to be an absolute prohibition on anything that has any impact on religion whatsoever. And so, again, you bring in, bring in those questions of judgment and, and, and balancing, and that means that the courts are going to have to devise a test to give effect to those words. And that's, that's not something specified in the Constitution itself, but it's a test that the courts will have to develop in, in applying, and, and when doing when doing that, they'll have to they'll have to have regard to things like underlying constitutional values, and they, they can't be oblivious to cultural shifts as well. So there's, the, there's, there's a lot more to the constitution than the constitution, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and if if you are an alien that arrived in Australia in 2022 and thought. I need to understand how this society is governed. 
oh, there's this thing called the Constitution. That's the highest law in the land. I'll read it. Gee, you're not you're not going to get very far into understanding the way we're governed. Absolutely, <laughs> Just by what's yeah. in there. You know, the the office of prime minister famously is not mentioned in there at all. And if my my if my understanding is correct, that there's some some fancy administrative pretenses, probably not legal pretenses, that have to be gone through in order to make that that happen. That people are unaware of. You know, there's a, that strange council where the governor general presides over isn't there that where the mm. i mean the prime minister calls the shots but but technically there there's this kind of administrative body that is, isn't really part of the political process so no one knows that it exists or or whatever but isn't isn't that necessary to bridge the kind of fact that the executive power is seems to be vested in the monarch through the delegate of the governor general i know that, I'm, that's I'm right digressing yeah. here yeah you so know one of the framers of the constitution called bernhard wise he said that an American or a foreigner, if he came to read the Constitution, would, would search it in vain to try and understand how, how a country is governed for, the, for the, precisely the reasons that you mentioned. So there's a whole body of constitutional law and constitutional understandings and conventions, which are the background to the drafting of the Constitution. And so the Constitution is drafted on the assumption that those conventions will apply when it, when it, um, when it's, when it's worked, when it's exercised. So the powers are exercised in, you know, in conformity with those conventions. And so the, the constitution is not a self-contained document. You need to read it against the light of its historical background. Just going back to the high court cases on section 116, that first one you, you mentioned was really about the establishment part. Did any of the other cases test other aspects of section 116 or have they all been about the establishment component? No, the very first case was a case called Krieger in uh, it was the First World War case. And this is a Jehovah's Witness who was a conscientious object, objector to being drafted for military service and he said I, I don't want to I'm objecting to being required to, to serve and the High Court said well you can if you if you sign up and train in the military you could train to be a medic and, and then you'd be, you'd be training to save life not to take life so how could this possibly be a conscientious objection if the only thing you're being required to do is train for the purpose of saving life um, so probably not a very controversial example but um there were some very narrow – the court was very dismissive of the idea of religious freedom, and that's kind of set the tone for later cases. And there was a Second World War case, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses case, and in this case um, the Commonwealth took the view that the Jehovah's Witnesses' teaching was contrary to the interests of Australia or contrary to national security. I wanted to shut them down. And ben, ben, can, I just, can I just ask, I'm curious, what, what was the teaching that was the source of the controversy? Ah, oh, that uh, civil government was satanic, I think, and <laughs> an agent of the devil. So, basically, weakening, um, weakening respect and uh, and honour for the for the for the government and its war efforts. Okay. So, and how did the court adjudicate that one? Well, the court basically held that freedom of religion is not absolute, but there are other legitimate interests and rights and objectives that the government can pursue, which might have an impact on religious freedom and maintaining the security of the realm during a time of war is a legitimate uh, objective that the government can pursue and therefore it's legitimate to infringe religious freedom if that was subversive of, of national security. And so the, the just the, I'm inter interested, the underlying facts of that case, had the government moved to suppress that teaching in some kind of way? Is that what, and is that what precipitated the legal action? Yes. So I think it was um, stopping them from 
from uh, carrying on as an as an incorporated association and confiscating their property. I think they were the facts. All right, and the court, if I understood you correctly, the court upheld that the government could do that. That's right. Okay, so that really goes to the that suggests there is some, like we said, some some real scope there for the Commonwealth to. Um, notwithstanding the prohibition on restricting the the free exercise of religion, there are other considerations that, that can allow the Commonwealth, such as national security grounds. Presumably that, that would also prevent an action trying to defend jihadist terror suspects or people charged with terrorism offences on the basis that it's just an exercise of their free religion. That's right. So it's, it's really the later case, the um, state aid case that held that the the word for means had the purpose of interpretation. So in this case, there is a, there is a recognition that you can weigh weigh the free exercise of religion against other rights and fr- freedoms and objectives. And so there is that scope for balancing that proportionality analysis. It wasn't ex- expressly um, discussed in those terms, but there is a sense of of weighing the free exercise of religion. And so. In this case, it was upheld as valid, but, but there might be that if a law was really restrictive and way over the top, that might be disproportionate or it's, it's too heavy-handed to achieve the objective and a more balanced or more more measured approach or less restrictive approach might achieve the same objective. So, Ben, in light of the fact there's only been four high court cases or four principal ones, I mean, whatever the total figure is, it's, it's pretty small. Yep. Should that make us cautious in being overly definitive in our interpretation of what this section could mean just because we can't predict exactly how the High Court might really go into particularly the, the area where there's there's clearly some balancing to be done on the free exercise of religion? Like, is, is it would it be fair to say that unlike perhaps some other sections of the Australian Constitution. It's a bit of a black hole here when it comes. We don't have a lot to to, to go by. And, I, and one has to assume there could be further cases in the future that might, I don't know if they would surprise us. You're, you're the um, constitutional expert here. I mean, is there, is there scope for surprises or us, if there are another 10 cases, are they likely to just work from the precedents have been, that have been set and do a bit of refining here and there. So you're right, four cases is a very small sample set and it's difficult to draw firm conclusions. I think the interpretation of the Establishment Clause is fairly settled. So after the state aid case, I think it's very unlikely that the court would retreat from that. That was a fairly strong precedent. But I think with the, the Free Exercise Clause, it is really ripe for reinterpretation. And I think what, what my colleague and I did in that recent article was say, everyone's really assuming that it's it's settled, that it's a purposive test. But actually, if you read the cases more closely, there is scope for a more of a proportionality analysis. There, there is scope to look at the effect of a law. So I think that if the right case was brought, then there is certainly scope to reinterpret the free exercise clause. And there's been very, there's been no case on the religious observances clause and only really one case on the public office, religious test for public office clause. So it's possible that there could be cases okay. in, in those areas. But I think... Um, so the establishment clause is, is largely settled. There is scope to reinterpret the free exercise clause. But it's also just, again, it, ha- it has a chilling effect. So if everyone assumes that, that the interpretation is settled and that 
for is it means purposive then that discourages the bringing of, of cases so it has a kind of um ah, okay. self-perpetuating impact anyway yeah. and again bearing in mind that the fact that it's not litigated in the high court doesn't mean that it's not important or it's not agitated publicly it just means it's not the court that's determining these things it's it's parliament and the people and that's not wholly a bad thing yeah and, and the provision it's in effect for the government every day, irrespective of whether there's litigation, right? So it, the, the litigation is just to, to settle disputes, but the 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 effect is sort of permanent. <laughs> well, that's true. So there's a lot happens behind the scenes that we don't always know about. So when in the in the legislative development process, the government will seek advice from the Solicitor General or the AGS or whatever as to how as to the constitutional validity of a, a proposed legislative uh, uh, amendment, and so. Um, that will feed into the development process. So the Solicitor General will advise, you know, this is likely to be, con- you know, constitutional or unconstitutional. So it does, there's a lot behind the scenes which we don't necessarily know about. So it might have impacts that we can't see. Yeah. And just quickly, you mentioned there was one case on the, uh, what was it, the religious qualification test for an office or public trust. What, what was that? So this is the Williams case. This is uh, Ron Williams who brought the challenge to, the, the National Chaplaincy Program, and he argued that funding Commonwealth funding chaplains in public schools was contrary to Section 116, and was actually it was held to be unconstitutional, but on completely different grounds, which had nothing to do with what we were, had little to do with what we're talking about today. It was about executive power, but the, the High Court did did discuss that clause, and they said that a chaplain funded by the Commonwealth wasn't a um, didn't infringe this clause. So it wasn't uh, so the fact, the fact that they had to be religious workers, I suppose, or chaplains working for a religious body, didn't mean that they were required to hold a, a religious qualification for a public office. So okay. the court read it down fairly narrowly. Okay, interesting. And does that do these narrow readings reflect a kind of constitutional, uh, a kind of high court tradition in Australia? Like, is that in keeping? with our tradition of jurisprudence? There is a tradition of reading rights provisions fairly narrowly. When it comes to legislative powers, that the court will read the, the Commonwealth's legislative powers fairly broadly. But when it comes to rights and reading down and prohibitions and those sorts of things, there is a tradition of reading it much more narrowly. And again, it could be that it's a political, part of the political culture of Australia. These things are better determined in the parliament rather than the courts. That Perhaps that's part of it. But there is a there is a sort of widely acknowledged view that the, the court reads rights provisions very narrowly. That's very interesting. Uh, I'd like to bring in America here because anyone that has read the what is it the First Amendment will see some striking similarities in at least the I think establishment and free exercise of religion. And I I had it in my mind again through hazy reading over many years of reading lots of in lots of random areas that the framers of our constitution were well aware or at least some of them were well aware of the the preceding provision in America and actually looked to it as a source of inspiration but i think there are some subtle differences i don't know if they're substantive or just linguistic but i guess what i want to ask is what what influence did the american constitution have on our section 116 yes so the the person who moved the incorporation of section 116 was henry higgins 
And he very much drew from the United States First Amendment when proposing this. So he was the one who was concerned that the Commonwealth might be considered by inference to have power to legislate about religion. And he based his based the clause on the US, particularly the Establishment and Free Excise Clauses. And then there's also a something similar to the, the public the religious test for public office clause in the in the in the American Constitution. So it, it did very much influence the wording. I don't think the framers of our constitution gave too much thought or, or really really agonized over this clause. They agonized over other clauses for, for days and weeks on end. But they, they adopted this again right towards the end of the, the finalization of the constitution. I don't think they gave that much um, attention to the precise wording, but they were certainly informed by the US Constitution in drafting section 116. So it would be fair to say this was not considered a controversial uh, provision in the Constitution? I mean, did anyone actually oppose it? Uh, it was controversial. So some a substantial minority said, we just don't need this because the Commonwealth is not going to do these things anyway. So we're, we're very enlightened these days. People tried establishment in the past, but we've moved on from that. That was the basic argument. So the argument, we can, we, we can trust Parliament and the people to legislate sensibly, and we don't need a protection in here uh, against those things. But the majority voted in favour of the clause. So it was it was controversial, but it, it did it, 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 it passed, obviously. So <laughs> It won the day. Was that a simple majority vote at the convention? Is that how provisions happened, or did they have to reach a consensus? No, it was a majority. Okay. Something like 26 to 19 or something like that. I can't remember the exact okay. numbers. But. And, and just finally on Section 116, because I do want to move to the preamble, which which I hadn't realized before we began this discussion, was the thing that precipitated Section 116. Sure, yep. I didn't actually realize there was a connection, which is interesting, and I'd like to explore that further. But uh, you and some of your colleagues have... Uh, done some interesting scholarship on some of the, let's call them scholarly interpretations of, maybe this is the wrong term, but law is not my primary lens. So I was thinking more more the philosophy around Section 116 yep. and its implications. Could you run us through some of the theories that have been offered, not by judges, but, but I guess legal theorists or philosophers about how we should understand Section 116. And um, some of these have names. You've written about something called the neutrality theory and another one, the safeguard against religious intolerance theory. These are really interesting. So if you want to know the lingo, it's a constitutive theory of Section 116. That's the terminology you can use, if you like. What does that mean exactly? So not, not the legal interpretation, but how do we make sense of Section 116? What's our theory? What's our account of it? So that's um so things like the neutrality theory is a, is a, is a is a theory of section 116 and that, that might flow through into how you interpret it but it's really about saying what is section 116 about so the neutrality theory is the idea that the government should be neutral as between religion and non-religion and as between so shouldn't and, and religion and other religions so that the, the government shouldn't penalize you for not being religious or or promote presbyterianism and not methodism or whatever so it's about Neutrality, the government should be neutral and people should make their own decisions as to what religion or not religion they want to ad adopt or believe. So that, that has some attraction to it. And that was Stephen McLeish who came up with that theory and he's now a judge on the Court of Appeal in Victoria. Um, the standard account is that it's a federal it's a federal provision, as I mentioned earlier. So 
Section 116 is, is not primarily about individual rights. It's about the rights of the states and the distribution of power in the federation. That's the standard account. So the neutrality theory is an alternative account of Section 116 to that standard narrative. And then more recently, you have Luke Beck's approach. Luke Beck is a professor at, at Monash. And his view is that Section 116 is about religious intolerance. And so intolerance for him means attempting to suppress or change people's religious beliefs. So for him, Section 116 is prohibiting the Commonwealth from attempting to suppress or change people's religious beliefs. And so uh, establishment would be intolerant on that account because it's, it frames those who don't believe to the, in the majority religion as outsiders. Uh, infringing free exercise would be clearly attempting to suppress your religious beliefs or the, the expression of those. Well, what's your view of these three theories? So I guess... Taking a step back, I mean, how would you go about answering that question, I guess, is, it, is the first step. So we've got these three really three theories. And what, what I what, what, what I and my colleague have argued in a recent paper was that, I mean, a theory of Section 116 needs to make sense now as well as the time that it was framed. So if, if your theory of Section 116 would have been incomprehensible to the framers, then in my view, it's, it's not a, a convincing theory. And so um, applying that test, I think that the federal approach the standard narrative clearly stacks up and makes sense because the, the, there are there's evidence from the framers debates that this was their motivation um, i think the neutrality theory has some attractions to it but again it, 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 it's not something the framers would recognize so again as, as that federation australia was an overwhelming christian society and so australia did endorse christianity as the official religion so to say there should be no no endorsement or support of of a particular re religion would not have made sense at the time the constitution was drafted. So I think there needs to be recognition of a greater level of government involvement in religion and religion in government than the neutrality theory is open to. And finally, Luke Beck's accounts, the, the religious intolerance theory, there's, there's problems with that. It's, it's heavily reliant on the history, but his, his account of the history is pretty um, unconvincing and so I guess the, t the two main objections to his theory, first of all, is the fact that the preamble expressly recognises God and it, it recognises the, the Christian God. And on his view, that would be intolerant because it's a corporate confession of religion is, is inconsistent with his intolerance account. And it would be a bit silly to say the preamble is contrary to section 116. You know, you should have interp an, an interpretation that allows for them both. Uh, and secondly, given that the... Given that Section 116 has a, has a federal purpose, when the framers weren't trying to stop laws that infringed the free exercise of religion, they're just saying the Commonwealth can't do it. So it's not a principled objection to intolerance. It's just saying the Commonwealth can't do these things and we're reserving those powers to the states. So I think um, there's attractions to particularly the, the neutrality theory, but I think applying the, the, the test that your interpretation of the constitution has to have made sense as at the time of federation, even though we're not bound by the framers, you know, I'm not, not an originalist saying we, we can only do what the framers um, intended. Yeah. If it doesn't make any sense, it if, if it would have been incomprehensible to the framers, then I think that's not a, not a convincing interpretation. Yeah. Well, it's a good indication that you've left the playground, so to speak, and you, you have now taken the interpretation in a direction that has to by just on factual grounds be quite different yep. Yep, <laughs> from, right. from um, what could have even been 
uh, envisaged by the framers. Let, let's turn now to the preamble, and I'm just going to read it again. I think maybe you read the, you sort of articulated the whole thing or part of it. And this is what it says right at the beginning of the Australian Constitution. Whereas the people of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland, and Tasmania, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, that's the key bit, have agreed to unite in one indissoluble federal commonwealth under the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, and under the Constitution hereby establish, and then I guess it runs through the the whole constitution so before we explore the 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 connection between the preamble and section 116 how did this this key i'm just trying to count how many lines it is about seven lines humbly relying on the blessing of almighty god how did almighty god end up in the preamble because this i was surprised to learn from your own research there's a bit of a story here it didn't get in by accident no, there was, an, there was initially quite strong resistance to it from the framers. So some of the framers said things like, you know, the whole frame of government, this is Edmund Barton, who was the key leader of the later convention and, you know, responsible for largely responsible for drafting the constitution and uh, guiding it through the, the process. He said, the whole business of government is secular business. So religion has its place in church, in the pulpit, in the pew, and government is, is a completely separate sphere. So why bring, why bring religion into it? And other framers were concerned that it's kind of a um, nominalism, if you like. It's it's an outward expression, but you can't force that. You can't force that. So um, uh, it's kind of like a institutionalized hypocrisy, if you like. So re- religion should be something heartfelt and not just in, in these forms and, and outward displays. So there was resistance to including it, but there was such an an outcry or an uproar. Perhaps a lot of churches wrote, you know petitions saying we need to recognize almighty god in, in in the constitution and so that that's why so re- feeling the force of that those petitions was ultimately why the framers put it in so they're, they're elected delegates they're accountable to the people and they saw themselves as giving effect to the wishes of the people and so if such a large number of people want this in the constitution then we should put it in so the, the extraordinary thing about this i say extraordinary just because I mean, this, I'm, I'm like a broken record on this podcast with this, but every time yep. I explore Australian history and secularism, you're just kind of shocked at the disjuncture between the contemporary narrative we tell ourselves, which is not necessarily untrue in the contemporary domain, but there's this gross ignorance about the particularly Christian history mm. of Australia that, go, that runs, it's not only very tangible and manifest in the 19th century, but it run, runs right through into the latter half, early latter half of the 20th century. So I just want to make sure I've got this right. One one way to really articulate this is that God ends up in the preamble by popular demand because the people want it, not necessarily because the framers and delegates at the convention wanted it, but there's a kind of grassroots movement agitating <laughs> for the inclusion of God in the Constitution. And it's only because of that that uh, popular pressure. Correct. That God right. makes it in. And so as that so as that federation, ninety six point one percent of the population was Christian. So that's seventy three point four percent Protestant and twenty two point seven percent Roman Catholic. So an overwhelmingly Christian country. And so people like Luke Beck have, have looked at this and said it's really just a cynical power power play, power grab by the local leaders. So Protestants are 
worried about power slipping through their fingers. And so they want, want to put this recognition of God in the preamble to hang on to that power. Whereas when you actually look at the history in light of Protestant political theology, it's entirely consistent with that. And so um, the idea of this corporate confession of religion, it's not a... So again, we, we, we're a very secular society now, and that looks to us like intolerance. So you're, you're imposing something from above on the people. Whereas actually it was the opposite. So it was an, an overwhelmingly Christian society wanting to give effect to or give public recognition to that belief. And the idea that the... So in Protestant political theology, there's been a much much greater, traditionally, a much greater role for the civil magistrate, the civil ruler in matters of religion. And so this is not inconsistent with that, but, but consistent with that long history of of uh, Protestant political theology. And so it's not a cynical power play. It's just we're an overwhelmingly Christian, Christian country. We want to give corporate expression to that in our founding document. And that's what they did. Yeah. And, and this was clearly important to enough people uh, at the time. Now, on the, the legal point, this, you said something very early in this conversation that was news to me, and I, I want to explore it so that I, I can understand it better. Because my, again, my sort of a basic uh, understanding of preambles to constitutions is that they have no legal effect whatsoever. But I think you said that there was a fear late in the final convention that there might be some inference from the mention of Almighty God in the preamble that necessitated the inclusion of Section One Sixteen. Can you can you talk us through what what effect legal effect, if any, the preamble has, um, and just the logic of this concern that that actually led to the inclusion of Section One Sixteen. So, so the preamble is best seen as a kind of political statement rather than anything that's intended to have any strong legal effect. So it's the preamble is saying, we the people have united, relying on the blessing of Almighty God. And so it's a really a political statement, emphasizing that it's the... the, the so Nicholas Aroni, you've heard on this podcast before, yeah. he's done a lot of work on this, and that's really his... He'd be the leading expert in Australia on this. But the idea of a fe- federation is a covenanting together of pre-existing political units. So the people... So when it says the people of the colonies have united, that's giving express, expression to that federal idea. So it's not just a mere division of power, but it's a covenanting of pre-existing entities into one now indissoluble federal commonwealth. And again, that's not intended to have legal effect. It's a, it's a political statement of, of, of their aspirations. So it's not, not intended to confer power. So the, the preamble is not in the constitution itself. It's in the Enabling Act. So nine clauses. So this is, it was given effect to by an act of the Imperial Parliament. And so it's, again, it's a statement of political aspiration, but the the constitution is, is, is then separate or it's contained in an appendix, if you like, to that enabling act. And uh, Higgins, so whether Higgins's fear was justified or not is a separate question, but he, he did fear based on, there was an American case which had held that uh, America was a, a Christian country and he feared that through judicial interpretation that would in- inferentially confer power on the Commonwealth to legislate about religion. Whether or not that was a legitimate fear, I guess is a su- kind of separate question. It's probably unlikely or very unlikely, but that, that is what he feared and that's why he, he moved for it to be included. And and this is the guy, of course, uh, from, you, you said earlier, just to recap for listeners, who he was the guy who was who had, who had uh, I think came up with the wording and he was looking at the First Amendment in the US. So clearly he was that's plugged right. into what was going on in that, that uh, context. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the 
so just that that's fascinating about the the sort of relationship between the preamble and the constitution but can you just clarify for my understanding and listeners is there any context in which the preamble and the wording of the preamble could be considered by the high court in the context of some kind of judgment it's possible so it's it's unlikely that it would be considered in a freestanding way so the court wouldn't look to the preamble and say here are the implications that follow from it but it might be that the court would interpret a particular provision in light of the preamble. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we might look at a particular provision in light of the fact that this is a federal constitution designed to give effect to that, you know, covenanting together of pre-existing political units. So, we're unlikely to have any freestanding effect, but it might be relevant to the interpretation of another provision. Yep, got you. The courts, the court is very, very, when it interprets the constitution, it very much focuses on text and structure. So it anchors its interpretations in the text of the constitution. So again, it might have some, the preamble might have some relevance, but the court will focus very much on what does this specific provision say in the light of the constitution as a whole. Got it. And has just out of interest, this just popped into my mind actually, has there any ever been a proposal or movement to try and amend section 116? Is anyone? Is there anyone in Australia today that thinks there's a problem with Section 116 or the preamble for that matter. I know, I guess the preamble is sort of up for debate because I think it was John Howard that was at least moving towards adding or amending the preamble to acknowledge the place of Indigenous Australians. But I'm I'm just wondering because I'm I'm thoroughly aware and this does take us into into uh, some territory I do want to go with you, which is... And I'm sure you're just as conscious as I am that there are these secularists in Australia, self-described, and these secularist organisations. And in my interactions with them on Twitter, which of course is an extremely reliable guide to <laughs> what any group thinks, their their focus seems to they seem to have an obsession with the Lord's Prayer in Parliament as the sort of great offence. Yeah, of- sure. You know the great threat to to secularism, which has always baffled me, because religion is mentioned in the constitution, and and the Christian God Himself gets an, a position of honor right at the start of the preamble. So, yep. I mean, is there any movement agitation? People talking about I don't know scrapping section one sixteen, tightening it up, reforming it, eliminating God from the preamble. There have been proposals in the past to amend section 116, none of which really got anywhere. So amendments to the constitution tend to be very rare in Australia because of the high threshold for amendment. So um, there are no current proposals that I know of to amend section 116. And it's unlikely that people would would bother, I think. There there was John Howard's famous proposal to amend the preamble to include mateship. Uh, I'm not sure if that proposed to remove God though. Do you remember that or? I don't remember that and just... From what I know of John Howard, I, I, I would assume that that he didn't uh, move in that direction. I could be wrong, but yeah, I, I can't remember the detail. Like but I think that, so. The most of the proposals these days are to reinterpret Section 116 in a more secularist direction. So, hist- I mean, so one of the guiding principles, of course, is the separation of church and state in relation to religion and the government. But that was historically about the institutions of church and state, so that the institution of the church shouldn't dictate to the state what it should do and, and the state, the government shouldn't 
interfere in the management of the of the church as an institution. But it was open. But even that that principle was open to a wide range of interaction between government and religion. So it wasn't a separation of religion from public life. Whereas these days, given the more secular and and hostile view of Christianity that many people have, there's a move to reinterpret section 116 in terms of a more separationist uh, interpretation. So things like removing the Lord's Prayer and public funding for schools and so forth, that's very much based on a separationist view, which which argues that government and religion should be entirely separate. So that's that's quite a different different uh, concept than the separation of church and state. Yeah, yeah. And, and I actually jotted down a quote from uh, one of your articles that speaks to this, which I, I found really uh, illuminating and insightful, actually. And and that is you say you say with your co-author whose name escapes me so apologies, the majority and I think you're talking about the the time that the constitution was framed that the majority accepted the need for an institutional separation of church and state but rejected the idea that this required a total separation of religion and government and what I'm what I'm particularly interested in here is this subtle but very meaningful distinction you identify. Uh, between religion and state and church and state. And I think those two get conflated a lot in the contemporary conversation. And it's interesting to know that at the time, Christians, they were quite comfortable with the separation of church and state. They weren't looking, as we, as we had in the upper house in the UK, for you know Anglican bishops, for a quota of Anglican or maybe Catholic bishops to be in the Senate. In our, in our case, they weren't yep. looking... For I think in Saudi Arabia, uh, I once had occasion to study their constitution. It's a long story for something I was working on, but the, and I don't know what this means. But there's a provision early on, which is quite common in Muslim majority states, where it says no law can can contravene the Quran, for example. Okay. Like yeah. That, that's clearly, you know, but that that example of, of the bishop. So I, and I guess arguably. It would be harder to argue this in the UK context, if 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 I'm not mistaken, that there, there is some entanglement between the church and and state there. I think even the British monarch has to be Anglican, if I'm not not mistaken. Mm. Says the whole. I don't think you could even be a Catholic in the Parliament at some <laughs> at some point of time in the in England, at least. So the Christians at the at the time of Federation, they were not looking for formal political power in the parliament of the church but that didn't mean they thought religion that the that the um the state should have no role in religion and they were able to separate these two issues and i find that secularists are unable to separate them and, and even i don't know what you think but I, my my perception is that this distinction is not not maintained or really recognized these days in the public discourse in australia well, first of all, it's great that someone's actually read my articles. <laughs> <laughs> they tend to get read by about six people, so this one's I'm been read seven. by seven. <laughs> but yeah, that's um, that's very much the case. So uh, again, if, if our interpretation of the Constitution, we're not, we're not originalists, we're not confined to what the framers said. Yet our interpretation of the Constitution must must make sense to to the framers. If it was incomprehensible to them, then I think it's not a valid interpretation, and. As at the time of federation, there was this widespread view that church and state are separate institutions, separate, separate 
entities, so they have their own institutional autonomy, different roles and functions and so forth. And yet there's still a view that religion was the basis for civil morality and society. So religion under, underlies a whole range of public institutions like the Lord's Prayer in Parliament. There were public days where um, of rejoicing because of federation where bishops and, and leaders were invited to pray and, and, and speak. So there's a, much, there's, a, there's a greater, much greater level of entanglement between government and religion than typically we would recognize today. So the separation of church and state is not about, it's not the same thing as the separation of religion from government. And so people today use separation of church and state like this, this watchword, but in fact, it's, it's, it's quite a different thing. And so whatever we might think is the, is, is the, is the right position, I think you can't interpret section 116 in that way. So it needs to be able to accommodate a level of entanglement between government and religion. And so things like government funding private religious schools, I think is not, not an infringement of the establishment clause. And uh, the Lord's Prayer is not inconsistent with, with, with the constitution. So I think that there should be a, the separation of church and state doesn't mean that religion should be entirely removed from public life and public institutions. And not only that, but you, you can maintain a functional institutional separation between religious institutions, not just churches, synagogues, mosques, whatever, and the state. But the idea, and this is where the secularists really just bemuse me, the, the idea that you can disentangle religion from the state in a democracy, hmm. I find inconceivable. Be unless you literally say, well, no practicing Christian can run for office, uh, no Christian institution can enjoy any of the rights. You know, Christians can't receive Centrelink. They can't. They can't uh, benefit from any of the laws because in a in a democratic society, religious people are going to be a part of the conversation and. <laughs> that the more religious people you have, the greater impact and influence uh, religion's going to have. And so you get this strange paradox where we we constantly have all these Christian prime ministers, which is just not rocket science. That That's inevitable in a democracy. Well, not inevitable, but, I mean, it, it's, it's not surprising in a democracy that Christians might run for parliament. In fact, they're probably more, more motivated for certain reasons. That's another... Uh, discussion and I, I find that often the term the separation term separation of church and state which the secularists send me all these pictures with like you know hard walls memes and stuff of like this firm separation I, I I think what they what they really mean is a separation of religion and uh, the state because they can't point to anything I mean if the Lord's prayer is your evidence for the church having too much power in the state, uh, then you'd literally have no idea what you're talking about. But of course, you just get silence and crickets once you point out, okay, so how do you want to implement this without undermining the free society, equality before the law, equal rights that we have in a democracy like Australia? And you get nothing because there is no answer to that. You have to go to some non-democratic model, it seems to me. Well, that's right. It's entirely on the, the secularist terms too. So it's a secularist conception of what religion actually is. Yeah. Whereas for, for a Christian, I mean, my, my faith impacts everything I do. It impacts yeah. not just the fact that I go to church on a Sunday, but it impacts the way I work, the way I vote. It impacts all of my life. And that's what the scripture says. So the idea that you can quarantine your faith to, to Sunday at the pulpit and the pew is entirely 
non-religious understanding of religion. And so that so if if a democracy is composed of people who who are Christian and of various faiths and beliefs, then you 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 have to give effect to those religions in some way. That that religious belief can't just be quarantined. No, and and I guess the the final point. Again, I'm just kind of clarifying this to some extent in my own mind, is that the the church is nowhere to be found in the constitution, but religious religion is. So the mm. idea that you can separate religion from the state when our framers put it in there, both in the preamble and in a, a section that literally mentions religion and religious <laughs> numerous uh, times, it it belies this, uh, in a way, secularist myth or misunderstanding about the history and nature of Australia. And I just wish actually they were more honest and say, and they said, look, we recognise Australia was a Christian country for most of its history, and that's reflected actually in our constitution. We actually want to change it, and we we want to reform it, and we're conscious that this this is actually a revision, and will necess- necessitate revision of the constitution and an erasure of our history. And this will obviously have implications for the five million or so Australians that regularly attend a religious service. Yeah, and that's been part of what I've been trying to achieve with my recent articles on, on section 116, looking at the, the theological and political background of belief at the time of federation and how that informs the interpretation of section 116. And so, yeah, so a, a strict separations account just isn't sustainable based on the historical evidence. So, Ben, I think we've uh, done a good job on Section 116 and the preamble. And it sounds like I'm about to close the show, but I actually just want to ask you one, tie up one loose end because it came up a few times in the Constitution, uh, in the Constitution, came up a few times in the course of the conversation and listeners don't need to be reminded that this idea of religious freedom slash religious discrimination it's been really big news or at least it was a year or two ago at the end of the coalition government i seem to remember labor promising to do something on this but uh, it seems to have fallen way down the agenda which is not surprising i think <laughs> it's not it's not their burning priority so you're a sort of expert in the constitution you've practiced as a, a lawyer so you know all about the law and you've looked at this issue of religion and law in the Australian context. I've just wondered, I'd be love to hear your view on where you land on this idea of do we need a religious freedom bill or discrimination? And, and perhaps you could finally clarify for me, is there a difference between religious freedom legislation and religious discrimination or just people using different terminology for really the the same thing but i'd just love to hear your well-informed thoughts considered thoughts on whether this is a problem that has a legislative solution or needs a legislative solution and what that might look like or even just some things we need to be wary of and consider because i'm i'm guessing this is a lot more complex than just one section in the federal constitution because we've this really happens that this it's really the implications of state legislation if i understand this correctly which, of course, is not uniform. <laughs> yeah. Look, that's a really big and complex question, and you could do a whole show on the religious discrimination bill. So first of all, is is religious freedom and religious discrimination the same thing? No, I think religious freedom is a broader term. Uh, religious discrimination is really just about discriminating against people on the grounds of their religion. So whether it's a religious school 
refusing to employ someone or me be, the person being discriminated against on the basis of their religious beliefs when applying for a job. So, that, so discrimination is really a narrower meaning. Religious freedom is a, is a broader concept and it includes things like uh, my ability to hold a belief or not hold a belief, my ability to express that belief in public, so religious speech or re religiously motivated speech, and also other actions that are motivated by religion in some way. So religious freedom is a broader concept. The Religious Discrimination Bill was a more narrowly targeted at discrimination, but with some protection afforded to, to speech as well. So the, the Israel flower clause and things like that. Um, do we need it? Is it a good thing? Well, it depends on whether you think religious freedom is under threat. And I think there are plenty of examples um, over the last five or so years, especially after the same-sex marriage referendum, of people being discriminated against because of their religious beliefs. And it's increasingly hostile environment for Christians in many ways. So I would say, yes, it's, it's definitely necessary. And there's some great work being done by people like the Human Rights Law Alliance, which have catalogued some of the examples of things they've seen. So people speak, speaking about their faith in some way and being sacked or dismissed. There are, there's an increasingly large number of cases where, that, where that's happening. So um, my, my interpretation, my understanding is that religious freedom, particularly for Christians, is definitely under threat and that the Religious Discrimination Bill won't be a complete panacea, but will provide some protection um, for Christians who are experiencing discrimination and, and uh, loss of jobs, etc., based on their views. That's good enough for me, Ben. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise and exploring the, this fascinating dimension of Australian constitutional history. You're very welcome. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me on.